Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors. It really is a, a joy to be able to open God's Word uh, this morning, and uniquely so because this morning also marks the start of, whoa, <laughs> trust us, we're seven years into this, and if you're new with us, we do have everything all together, uh, all of us included, um, and if anything, this series is a reminder that God is working a wonderful amount of glory in advancing his kingdom in the world through very ordinary, normal people battling through a life with persecution, difficulty, struggle, and suffering. And this journey from now till midsummer through First Peter is really going to be a look at this amazing story that God is writing, uh, how he's calling a unique people to live in a unique way amidst a broken and fallen world to image and reflect his glory in it. If you're new with us, we'd love for you to track along with us, whether you've been uh, in church your whole life, maybe this is the first time you've ever stepped into church, whether you're a covenant member with us here at Harvest. This is a, an amazingly glorious word to us that's going to, to really show us who we are, who God is, what he's done in the gospel, how he's called us to live, where he's taking us ultimately in glory. We hope this would be a place where, believer, you grow in Christ uh, between now and mid-June. Uh, doubter, seeker, skeptic, that you wrestle with Jesus in community, in the gathering, over coffee, where we hash on the gospel and living life in this world and what it all means. And so it's a joy to start this uh, series with you today. I'd love to pray for us as we dive in and then uh, chart through these first couple of verses. Let's pray. God, we are uh, thankful this morning that you've spoken to us. You've certainly come for us. We believe in the gospel and you've given to us yourself and your word that's meant to comfort and instruct and correct and encourage and sustain and carry a people. God, you've formed a people and you will carry a people and ultimately you will complete your work and we want to be a part of that. We want to be found faithful in the midst of that. And we come now, even in this moment, just surrendering afresh to you, yielding uh, to you as our king. Speak, shape, save, do what you would do for your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen. So, uh, First Peter, put your bookmark there, hang out there. Uh, it's where we'll be again for the next six months. So, uh, by, by nature, just how we typically do, we just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, you uh, long-timers know that, but those of you who are new here would love for you to just chart, even in your personal devotions, women's Bible study, just let's hang out in First uh, Peter uh, for these months and, and really be shaped as a people together. But uh, this is Peter. Uh, we just came out of Mark, which was narrative form, and this is a letter and uh, proverbially speaking, it's mail day. Uh, we have gotten mail. No, not spam mail, not a vow pack that's full of products and services that are meaningless and valueless to us. No, we've gotten mail, uh, handwritten mail delivered to us. And if you have ever maybe had a long-term relationship or a friend that moved off for college or you've had a, a spouse or a sibling or a family member in the military, you know about mail, whether it be literally handwritten mail or FaceTime calls or whatever, where you're on the edge of your seat, you know the exact time windows that this beloved person's going to send you something and it's valuable. And maybe it's a 30 second call to say, hey, I love you. I'm okay. Maybe it's a long call uh, to really 
uh, explore a relationship. My sister was uh, married to a man that she began to date when he was in a deployment in Afghanistan. Their whole entire relationship was developed, uh, was incubated, and uh, ultimately led to their engagement. And they spent literally about 27 days together. And it was all oriented around an email or a phone call or a, a, a letter in the mail or a FaceTime. And it's just this, this way that when there's a person that we really care about or an issue that we really care about, that mail is, is fun. We love to get mail. And this morning, we're cracking open a letter. One person called it the grandest letter in the New Testament. It's a letter to all of us where it calls us to unpack the grace of God in our life, to Flesh that out in lives of faith that are transformed by the grace of God in the gospel. Because regardless of where we all are on a spiritual spectrum, we're all aware that life in this world is hard. It's difficult relationally, socially, economically, politically. There's difficulty. And if we uh, don't believe that, we're likely just trying to numb ourselves and cope with it. Because it's, it's, it's hard. And we all embrace that difficulty, and maybe we're all dealing with it in a, in a bit of different ways, but this letter is a letter from God. It's a letter from heaven, from the creator of the universe to us, and it's meant to encourage us. It's meant to instruct us. It's meant to form us as we navigate this life that's hard and hostile and divisive. And so as Peter starts this letter, I want to just really break this message as we introduce things and get kicked off here into three simple parts, the, the author, the recipient um, of it, and ultimately the, the God behind it. And, and here at the very beginning, Peter uh, doesn't hold back. He, he makes it very clear that he's uh, the writer, which for us as a church is interesting because we just came out of Mark, which is essentially the, the telling of the life of Christ by Mark through the eyes of Peter. It's sort of his account of how that all went down. And now here we find Peter, an older man, maybe even on the last leg of his run of life and ministry. He's been through all of, he's written through Mark in the gospel. He's seen Pentecost happen. He's lived faithfully for Jesus. And now he's writing uh, to these believers to encourage them. And when someone speaks to us, when someone writes to us, when we get any kind of really communication, letter, email, whatever it, it may be, it, it really packs a punch. And I think about the kinds of emails or, or texts or phone calls or letters I've gotten, the, the, the weight of that communication a lot of the time circles around a few different things, but, but relational closeness, how, how well do I know the person? Is it my family, my spouse, my mom, my dad, someone that I love deeply? Empathy, maybe someone who's writing to you because they've gone through what you've gone through. Maybe you're diagnosed with cancer, you lose a child, and someone writes to you and says, I've been where you've been, I know what you're feeling, and it just carries this gravitas, this weight uh, to us. Or authority, maybe you get a, a message from the head coach of the Georgia Bulldogs, and he says, hey, I want you to come hoist the national championship trophy with us in a picture, that was for you, uh, Blake Hickman. Um, but someone, a mayor, a governor, someone with authority that, that, that's, that's saying to you, Either I see you, I know you, I want to be with you. And it's like, man, you know, today I got an email from Drew and I got an email from the governor. And I, I won't uh, ask you to vote on which one of those would carry the most weight. But those three things carry weight. And in and, 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 and all of those ways, in, in, in closeness, in empathy, and in authority, this letter is going to, to speak with gravitas to us. Because it's from Peter, 
who is strikingly normal. And if you're new to church, be comforted that the Bible is not a bunch of awesome heroes that just crush godliness all the time. Peter is this comfortingly normal person who's like us. He was a fisherman from Galilee. He was a brother. He was a spouse. He had siblings. He was a normal dude who was raised and worked and mainly lived not far from where he grew up. He tried to walk on water once with Jesus, and it went well for a little while, but then it epically uh, failed on him. He tried to defend Jesus and sliced a soldier's ear off, and Jesus had to deal with that and put it back on right before the cross. Uh, Peter even tried to jump in front of Jesus to convince him that all of this could actually go a different way, and Jesus didn't need to do that, and Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Peter is not impressive, really. He's a lot like you and me, misses alarms, uh, doesn't stay on his diet, doesn't read his Bible every day, and he's just fighting and fledgling to keep following Jesus. That's who's writing this letter. He ultimately, at the end of his time with Jesus, uh, denies Jesus three times outside of the fire while Jesus is being put to trial. But also, Peter's writing uh, with an authority. He was super close to Jesus in the tight inner ring with the three best friends. He was invited up onto the Mount of Trans. Transfiguration, where Jesus pulls the veil back on all of the, the godness that he had. He was a, an eyewitness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He saw him. He was met by Jesus on the beach, ate fish with the resurrected Christ. He was, he was close. He, he was told by Jesus uh, even after his denial, and Jesus redeems him and restores him. He says, uh, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he says over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he says, hey, Peter, you are mine, and on you, this rock, I will build my church. And then a few uh, bits later, he preaches a sermon at Pentecost where really the wick of the gospel gets lit. The church blasts out of Jerusalem, and the kingdom begins to advance, really, to make us be where we are today. He's speaking as both a relatable and an authoritative person to us to really ground us in who God is and what he's doing in the world. And so I would just encourage you to, to listen up. He's carrying the credentials. They've, A, he's the mouthpiece of God, but also he's so like us, and yet he was so near and with our Savior. And so this author, he says he's Peter, an apostle of Christ. And he's, I'm going to get to this second bit, the, the apostle of Christ bit, but I want us to look uh, next really at the, um, the recipients of this letter and their identity, which were the elect exiles of the dispersion. He says he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He uses this language, elect exiles, which more formally translated would, would, would kind of transliterate out chosen sojourners, which is really where we've gotten the title of this message. And he's, so he's writing to these chosen sojourners, these elect exiles. And when you think about the word exile, maybe you've got a, a general cultural idea of what an exile is as someone that's sort of far from their homeland. Certainly if you've got handlebars on the Bible, you would know that Israel was God's people. They were disobeying and they got kicked out into Babylon and out of, the, out of God's land because of their sin. And that was called an exile. But the reason why sojourner is, is the the actual word here, and a better word, is because who Peter's writing to and their context, they're not where they are particularly because they sinned against God. 
They didn't get kicked out of some place as judgment. They are, they are where they are, and it's in a dispersion. It's in this, it's in this place, and we'll see in a bit that it, it sort of has two connotations. It's got a, a literal connotation and a spiritual connotation. The literal is that they are dispersed. They're out. They're spread out. They're not packed into Jerusalem anymore, right? They're, they're spread out in physical dispersion around the Roman Empire, but spiritually, which is really where the, the heat's going to be packed in the book and what we're going to unpack over these next months, is that they're in spiritual exile. They're, they're, they're living in a land, a spiritual land that's not their homeland. It's this land that we, are re- that we read about in Hebrews that Abraham was seeking, this new city not built with hands. They're in this foreign land. They're passing through. They're, they're like sojourners that are in a place Temporarily, and this place that they are is Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What we call today Asia Minor. There's a, a map I've put up here for any of you uh, teachers, history buffs, whatever, just to show you to get an idea of where we're talking about in the world. So you see, you got Italy. Uh, Rome is up there in the top left. The boot. If you uh, use the boot thing to memorize your world geography in middle school, like I did, you see Rome. He's writing from there to these believers that are in this big uh, red circle. And likely, uh, the way Peter lists it, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, is the route that this letter would take once it landed there to get into the churches in these places. And so it would start up there in the port city, work its way all the way around, go back out, and that would be the way that this letter would strengthen and edify the churches um, in that area. And so he lists out these these. These regions, you could think that if he was writing it right now, he would say to the believers in the triangle, the triad, the coast, and the sand hills. It was like, okay, this, this letter's going to come in. It's going to land in Raleigh. It's going to go to Greensboro. It's going to go to Charlotte. It's going to come back up through Wilmington, and these churches are going to be strengthened by it. That's what Peter's doing here. He's laying out this word for, from God about what uh, he's doing in their lives and how he's meant to, to shape them. But he calls them chosen sojourners. Right out, of the butt, right out of the gate, he says, this is who you are. It's this two-word identity marker. You are chosen sojourners, elect exiles. And he, he, he's, he's, he's driving this identity marker deep into how they see themselves. But a question to think about as we, we, we focus in on the, the dispersion part and this exile is, and, and, and especially in the nature of the spiritual reality of it, is why does God want Peter to communicate to his people and his people to understand themselves as sojourners in this world. A lot of ways we could think about ourselves. Why think about ourselves as exiles, aliens, sojourners in this world? Well, it's because of that first word that he uses before sojourners, which is chosen. You're not just a sojourner. You're not just an exile. You're not just an alien. You're an elect exile. You're a chosen sojourner. You're a, you're a person that's been set apart by God. And the reason why the people of God are spoken of as sojourners in this world is because what God does in the lives of his people is so transformative, so comprehensively restructuring that it makes living life in this world feel like culturally living life in a foreign place with a foreign language and a foreign food set and a foreign way of doing things. He's so definitively reshaped us by choosing us. Now, this word chosen 
And this word sojourners never appear beside each other like this anywhere else in any ancient Jewish or Christian writing. This is a uniquely gospel way for people to think about themselves in the world. And elect and chosen is always used in the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe this special people that are, that are special, not because they are special, but because God has set his love on them. He's uniquely chosen them among all the peoples of the world to be his sons and daughters, to be the recipients of his grace, his mercy, his blessing, and then to uniquely reflect it out into the world. So it's, it's, it's a dual choosing and a dual specialness. It's the, re, the, the special receiving of that love and the special responsibility to image and to reflect it. Deuteronomy 7 says it this way, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you. Friend, if, if, if you know Jesus this morning, if your sins have been forgiven, if you consider yourself a chosen sojourner, a, a son and a daughter of God, it's not because you had a great track record. It's not because of the credentials that you brought. You, we weren't pretty. Jeremiah says, he frames it this way. We were like a bloody mess on the side of the road when God passed. Like the, the, the worst roadkill carnage you've ever seen and the repulsive look away that you give to that. He said, that's what you were. And I, but I, I saw you there. I knew you there. I chose you there. I set my love on you there, and that's the kind of worship and love that Peter's meaning to, to draw up out of us as we hear that language. Peter uses even this language again in, in chapter 2, verse 9, when he calls these people a chosen race. He says, God, God saw you in your filth, in your unrighteousness, in your wickedness, and he set his love on you. That's what Ephesians says, right? In love before the foundations of the world, God set his saving love on you. And that's what he's saying of us. He's, he's saying God loves you. He's chosen you. He's set you apart. And because he's done that now, you're a sojourner. Because everything has changed now. Everything about you and how you see the world and where the world is headed is now getting defined and reshaped by this transformative work in the gospel. We've See, we see here in, in, this, in this passage that really in this work of the gospel and in this choosing, saving love of God, the, the, the primary switch that happens is a switch of kingship. That in this world and in our flesh, we are led by and are surrendered to and a slave to sin. Sin manifesting itself in selfishness, wickedness, all kinds of debauchery, and that what God does when he sets his love on us, when he chooses us, when he saves us, is he rips out the heart of stone, Ezekiel would say, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And when he replaces it with that heart of flesh, what happens is we were slaves to sin, and now we become slaves to Christ. We were under the compulsion and oppression of our flesh and sin, and now we are in surrender to Jesus and it's that idea of kingship that really comes through back in verse 1 when Peter says that he's an apostle. Because when he says he's an apostle, he's actually 
humbling himself to say, what I'm saying to you isn't my words to you, it's the very words of God to you. Because an apostle is not a disciple. He did not use the word disciple here. A disciple is like a student, a learner. An apostle is a speaker, on par with a prophet, the voice of God himself. Peter's saying, I'm coming to you, made an apostle by Jesus Christ, speaking to you a word from heaven. Not a word from Wikipedia, not a word from your news ticker, a word from God, made an apostle by him from your king. And so this morning, as we start this series, and as we hear these words and on through this series, we need to remember that this is not a man-made word. This is not a man-contrived word. This is a word spoken to us by God, and we would do well to hear and to respond to it. It's the voice of God, and He's speaking to us, beat up, suffering, struggling, exhausted people, about himself and what he has done for sinners in the life and death and resurrection of his son and what he is doing through his people for his glory in the world. And if you would listen to your doctor or your parent or your teacher or a politician or a, a sports figure or a social media influencer, please listen to the voice of God speaking to us today and in this series as he tries to lead us toward the joy that he has for us. He's announcing to us that the reason we should see ourselves as sojourners is because everything is different and everything is new insofar as we get redirected by the finished work of Christ and serve Him as our King. What's all new in this book? Well, in chapter 1, verse 3, our living hope is new. In chapter 1, verse 4, our inheritance is new. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, our way to live is new. In chapter 3, verse 8, our family is new. In chapter 5, verse 10, our future is new. You can't hardly think of anything that's not encompassed in the now, the present, the future, the past. It's like sin erased, future filled with the Spirit, hope in glory, right? It's, it's, it's all encompassing how this news is shaping us. Seeing ourselves as followers of Jesus, described in this language of a chosen sojourner, is about who at our core God means for us to be. The way for us to live. That we're both sojourners navigating a foreign land that's not our homeland, it's not glory, as we head toward eternity. But we're also not alone. We're not here isolated. We're chosen. We're seen. We're loved. We have the affection of God set on us, the grace and presence and provision of God. We are elect exiles. We're chosen sojourners, navigating a hard life with a gracious God. And it's that God that Peter points to us to here at the end of this introduction. It's an amazing picture of the full Godhead, passionate about saving a people, and, and, and sending his presence and glory into the world through that people, ultimately for the glory of his name. And you see Peter say that. He says, I'm sending this as an apostle to you, chosen sojourners, elect exiles in the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. First, we see God's identity as the Father. We're going to see his identity as the Father, the Spirit, and the Son here. But as the Father, Peter says, beloved, you are where you are. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is not just about God's sovereign knowledge of the facts of the universe. It's about His love and knowledge of people. 
all throughout the scriptures, when we see God foreknowing or uniquely knowing a people in this way, it's not about, it's not about intellectual knowing. It's about relational knowing. He's saying, you are where you are because you're the recipient. You're the beneficiary of the grace-filled, love-filled foreknowledge of God. He's known you before the foundations of the world. And I don't know what all these believers were going through, but I can, I can rip this into the current day context and be just so comforted that whatever is barraging us, is it coming from besetting sin? Is it external variables? Is it relational chaos inside of our household? Is it just the grind of every day feeling like the world is against you and you take five steps forward and three steps back? He's saying, I'm, I see you. And not only do I see you, but I saw you in eternity past, and that's where I set my love on you. Fully aware, Drew, that you're weak and fragile and sinful and prone to wander and unimpressive. That's what, like Matt Bishop said this morning, like, while I was a sinner, that's when the foreknowing love of God was set on me. Believer, that's where, that's where it was set on you. And he's saying, take comfort. A, that you were known by God before the foundations of the world. He set his love on you. And that what, wherever you are, these believers in the Roman Empire, they weren't facing little simple, small um, persecution. It was, it was real and it was significant and it was oppressive. And he's saying, you're not alone. The Father is seeing you. The Father knows you and the Father cares for you. A lot like Psalm 8 last week that, Ma that, that Matthew was preaching about, that there's this glory that God has that is set above the heavens, that's imminent and unapproachable and transcendent, and yet there's care and compassion and love that he would bestow on us. And in the middle of hardship and unbearable difficulty and trial and suffering or just in the everyday grind of life, it's an unbelievable comfort that the Father, the, the creator of all things, foreknew you and where you were. You wake up tomorrow and the worst possible case scenario that you can imagine happens. God's not surprised by that. He's not circling the emergency vehicles to come figure out a workaround. No, he, he knows you in that devastated loss or pain or suffering. He's saying, believer, Take comfort. You're chosen sojourners. You're elect exiles. You're where you are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Their whole situation and our whole situation as both the chosen, beloved, born-again sons and daughters of God is according to the foreknowledge of God. He says in 1.3 here that He caused us to be born again to a living hope. You love Jesus this morning You're you, you glad about glory. You're thankful that he's your king instead of yourself or somebody else. You're saying, that's because of me. He says, and John, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. This morning, as you're battling your sin and trying to navigate your divided heart, be thankful that God's got you. He chose you. You didn't fall in love with him. He fell first in love with you and drew you to himself. Praise be to God. And as we navigate difficulty in this life, that he's saying, I set my care and my compassion and my love on you. Their whole situation, both as, as the chosen ones of God and as the, the sojourners living life in exile, is underneath the foreknowing care and love of God. And it really speaks to his past 
awareness in eternity past and forever, the Father seeing us, knowing all things, being in all places. We don't know what this year holds, tomorrow holds, or anything that's coming holds, but God, God is already there. He, he already is where we're headed, fully faithful, fully sovereign, fully able to carry and sustain us. But he says, not only are you who you are and where you are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but you are who you are and where you are in the sanctification of the Spirit, meaning he's at work in you to, and me to set us free from that which would steal and kill and rob our joy and to lead us evermore into Christ-likeness and to his glory and into joy. In the sanctification of the Spirit, he says, it's this sanctification that's speaking not only to the, the past sort of knowledge and care and love of God the Father, but the present help of the Spirit, right? This, this helper, this friend that's closer to a brother, this one who would convict us and lead us and guide us into all the truth. This present help to free us from sin, to lead us to joy that's a helper outside of ourselves. These next six months is going to be a lot getting fleshed out about how we live and how we reflect the glory of God and how we live uniquely as image bearers for Him. But what it is not a call to do is muster up will, willpower to impress God by our deeds of moralism. No, it's a, it's a spirit-wrought living and giving of what God has given us for the good of the world, as the New Testament would say, to, to labor in the strength that God supplies, right, according to the Spirit, for His glory. He's reminding these believers that not only are they not alone, but, they're, but that He's not done with them. That He's actually working. There's a, there's a point in it. And if you're like me, that's frustrating because oftentimes in life, when we're suffering, when life's hard, when the blows keep coming, we're like, what's the point of all of this? Like, where are you at, God, and what's going on here? And he's saying, I'm working in your sojourning time to sanctify you into the likeness of Christ. And he's saying, you, like a lot of things, can't often see what I'm doing because you are in your own skin. Much like you can't really see your tomato plant grow by one millimeter up at a time, or you can't really see your four-year-old grow by one half an inch at a time. They're growing. And believer... God is locating your confidence and His work in your life not on you, but on Him. He's working in you. He's saving you. He's ripping your sin out. He's sowing seeds of righteousness in you. He's making you what He's going to make you. As Philippians would say, He's going to bring you to completion. You're not going to complete yourself. I'm not going to drag myself into some future great ideal that I have for me in which I'm pleased. No, God's going to do a work in me and in you and in us to make us like His Son, it's going to set us free from sin and lead us into joy in Christ. He's going to say, that's what's called sanctification. He said, I chose you, and when I chose you like I chose Israel, I set you apart. I made you a people. And now that you, I've set you apart, I'm going to keep on setting you apart and keep on refining you and keep on working on you to liberate you from sin and to set you free in the gospel. He's saying the Spirit is presently at work to sanctify us. And in our suffering, and in our division, and in our difficulty, He's calling us to thankfulness. He's calling us, he's calling us to, to see in all of that, in all of those trials and tribulations and persecutions, His work to refine us and to make us 
more like Christ. And he says, lastly, he's not only doing it in the foreknowledge of the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit, but for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. For obedience. He's saying, this is all meant to work up into you living a life to testify to the goodness of God and the glory of Christ as king. It says, first John would say, you will know that they love me, that they keep my commands. It's that he's actually our king to the degree that we're surrendered to him. And Peter's really passionate that these believers know that they only have really two choices, right? Christ is king of all or he's not king at all. And so he's saying all of this saving, sanctifying, God-oriented work is meant to transform your life and to cause you to live in this world in which you're sojourning as a reflection of my glory. And that's been the way he's been working from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Take this unique, special moment and blast it to the ends of the earth for my glory. And they face plant, right? And then Abraham gets this promise. He says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And yet that people sins against God and ultimately face plants. And over and over and over again, God's people failed to carry that out. And then here comes, right, the new man. Jesus, the image of God himself who succeeded in every way that every person before us and ourselves and every person after us will fail in order to secure that glory and purely, gloriously extend it through the ends of the earth. It's what he's always been about. And praise be to God that he sent the Son to be obedient on our behalf, right? To accomplish what we could never accomplish, that we might be found in Him and now not be the source of the light, but to be the reflector of the light. Like, God is not asking you to be a light. He's not asking you to, to conjure up a big righteous light. He's, he's asking you and I to be a reflector, to be a, to be a mirror that's, that's polished, that it might reflect the glory of God to the world and he argues this in chapter 1, 14 and 15, where he says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. There's, there's, a, there's a holiness in the God who chose us and set us apart and filled us with his spirit that's now been imparted to us. Once again, here we are, unimpressively trusting Jesus. Siri, Siri needs to get saved too. Anyway. So we've been talking a lot about mission strategies here at Harvest. Outreach team, let's put together some better um, strategies to save Apple and Tim Cook and, and Siri. Wow. Okay. I got it. We're okay. So, um, how's God going to accomplish this? How, how does God intend to take a sinful, unimpressive people that he has saved and filled with his glory? How does he intend to ever get the glory that he is due from such a sinful, broke-down people? It is because of the sprinkling of the blood of the Son. 
The only way we ever get there, the only way we can ever be made into a fit vessel is as the blood of Christ sprinkles down and washes over us. And that's what he says. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Lest we think that this is a call to to behavior modification and to just get our moralistic ducks in a row to, to make God like us and accomplish his purposes through us. No, he's reminding us we're nothing. We are valueless. We are worthless minus him. Minus the blood of Christ that would wash and redeem and save and fill us with the Spirit. We have nothing to bring. And amazingly, this idea of sprinkling with blood immediately draws us into the Old Testament. And quickly, there's three spots in the Old Testament where specifically people are sprinkled with blood. Three times. And it happens for three specific reasons. And i got to imagine that those three things are directly tied to what it means to be chosen sojourners in this world. And thank you to Wayne Gruden for pointing this out. But number one is in Exodus 24, when at Mount Sinai, Moses sprinkles all the people of Israel with blood to form them as the covenant people of God. And here Peter is saying, better than what happened at Mount Sinai when you got sprinkled with the blood of a goat or a lamb here at the new mountain, Mount Mount Golgotha, right? Calvary Mountain. I'm not sprinkling you with the blood of a goat. I'm sprinkling you with the blood of Christ. Not to make you an old covenant people bound by the law, but to make you a new covenant people bound by the gospel. He's saying, in the sprinkling of his blood, I'm making a family. I'm adopting you as sons and daughters, as Acts 20, verse 28 would say, that it's this people called the church, purchased by the blood of Christ. Sprinkled, washed, Clean, brought into the family of God. It's about family. It's also about function. In Exodus 29, Aaron and all of his sons get sprinkled with the blood of an animal when they get initiated as the priests. And what were the priests? The priests were the serving body that would mediate the, 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 the forgiveness and the presence of God to the people. And what does Peter call us in 1 Peter 2? A royal priesthood. He's saying this better blood, this blood of Christ is now sprinkled over you. And now as sojourners in this world, you not only are a part of a new family, but you've got a new function. You've got a mediating function in this world, which is to beam my nature and my character and my gospel and my glory to the world. Unimpressive fisherman, banker, stay-at-home mom, teacher, financial planner, all of us, unimpressive like Peter, sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb and now commissioned as mediating priests of the glory of God to the world. So it's functional. And then lastly, it's about freedom from sin. In Leviticus 14, a leper is sprinkled particularly and personally by the blood of an animal. A leper was completely ostracized from the people of God, the community of God, the worship of God. Had to literally stay outside the camp and declare out loud, unclean, unclean to anyone who would pass by. And this blood sprinkled on the leper now restored this person into the worship of God and into community. And he's saying, that's what I'm doing with you. I'm purifying you from your sin. I'm drawing you into relationship with myself and I'm drawing you into relationship with one another. Our salvation and our obedience is not made possible by the blood and sweat from our own brow, but by His. Jesus spilled His blood on our behalf. His blood forgives our sin. His blood transforms our heart. His blood makes us new. His blood empowers our obedience. His blood purchased our inheritance. His blood 
lays the foundation of the new city to which he has taken us, homeless sojourners. And Peter is saying all of that is attributable to the glory of God. The Trinity, the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, passionately and compassionately coming for us, sinners, to comfort us, to save us, to carry us, and to complete this work. John Piper calls Peter a God-saturated man. He calls First Peter a God-saturated letter, and it's all meant because we're supposed to have God-saturated lives. Would God do a work in us such that we would not be concerned about or impressed with one another, but be concerned about and occupied by Him? At Harvest Church, we want to have a great God. No great people, one great God. And Peter's solution to a big foreign world full of pain and difficulty is a big God with a big beautiful gospel. And Peter's story is our story. Weak, normal Met Jesus, transformed, used by Him, now speaking to us. A story where all the fullness and the glory of God meets all of our weakness and need. That's really the story of the gospel and the story of 1 Peter. And a story where needy people are met with an abundantly gracious God. And that abundant grace is where He ends this piece. Where He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In a place of difficulty and emptiness and persecution and suffering. Peter's saying there is grace and peace to be multiplied to you. And if you're suffering and struggling and you're beat down and you're wondering what is the pathway out of sin? What's the pathway into purpose? Where do I find meaning and value in this life? How can I ever be forgiven of my sin? I've got no raw materials to build with. God is saying by mercy and grace, peace and salvation and grace can be multiplied to you. God's saving and transforming work through the blood of His Son is multiplied exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. That's what's in the mail today. It's not bad news. It's not spam news. It's not irrelevant news. It's not random coupons to places you never want to go. No, it's hope. It's peace. It's grace multiplied to beat down suffering, struggling, exhausted people. And it's not news of how you can make yourself better. It's not news of how you can figure out your own way to, to put the pieces together. No, it's news from heaven of a God and Father who loved you before the foundations of the world, who sent the Son to live and die and rise again for you, who then sent the Spirit to be in you, to sanctify you and to make you like Himself, who, who rose from the dead and who is taking us to a new heaven and a new earth. That's what's in the mail today. And would we as the sons and daughters of God, would we as humans and brothers and sisters, would we hear that? Would we open it? Would we respond to it? And would God work powerfully through us as we do it together? Let's pray as we end this time and as we head off into this series for God to just do a mighty work in us. God, you are at work. You're speaking to us. You're saving us. You're sanctifying us. You're sending us into this world you're accomplishing your purposes. And God, while we're suffering and difficulty abounds, you're with us and you're for us and you're in us. God, you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You've secured salvation. You've secured our inheritance. You've secured a future in glory. God, help us, cause us to be a faithful people. Surrendered to you as our king. Reflecting you 
and your glory to this world, walking with you as we sojourn in this life. God, carry us. God, carry us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You guys stand with us as we sing in response to the word.